Open a new window, open a new door, travel a new highway that's never been tried before. Before you find you're a dull fellow, punching the same clock, walking the same tightrope as everyone on the block. The fellow you want to be is three-dimensional, soaking up life down to your toes. Whenever they say you're slightly unconventional, just put your thumb up to your nose and show them how to dance to a new rhythm, whistle a new song, toast with a new vintage. The fizz doesn't fizz too long. There's only one way to make the bubble stay. Simply travel a new highway, dance to a new rhythm, open a new window. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 18th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So, Peter, you got out of doors this week into the Central Park, and you saw a production of Electra. It wasn't on the torrential downpour days, was it? No, no. This was uh, yesterday, but it was uh, quite nice. Not even that cold. Um, so instead of Shakespeare in the park this summer, we have Sophocles in the park. And um, it wasn't a Fidelicord, I will grant you, but uh, it was at Cleopatra's Needle, uh, which is near 79th Street. That's where you enter, uh, right behind the museum. And you will um, see this uh, obelisk that really comes back from way back when. Uh, yes, it's not just a tribute. I mean, this really uh, was, was there in the time of her first Roman. So um, John Gaddy um, was dynamic in this production uh, directed by Daniel Libin, uh, who's really a film guy. But what had happened was um, during this pandemic, everybody's looking to do things and he decided, well, uh, you know, I saw the uh, opera Electra recently and it really inspired me about how much is going on goes on today as well. So he did a very contemporary version. Um, the F word was used. Um, it was really taken into the present day. And um, I thought it was a terrific production, but this John Gaddy came on like a house, not just a house on fire. I mean, really like a, a forest fire and um, really uh, made the proceedings dynamic as could possibly be. So it's just so very nice to know that um, there are these little ad hoc pr- Hawk productions that uh, crop up. You know, there was no amplification, nothing like that. Um, there was an audience that was probably going to be the audience to size when Broadway resumes. Um, enough people filled the benches right around the, its a circular a series of benches uh, around Cleopatra's Needle, if you've never been there. And um, the it was... It was basically half full, but the part that um, faces uh, where they were actually playing, they they didn't much vary from one side of the needle. And um, and a good time was had by all. Um, the, the audience applause was just so wonderful at the end. You could really tell the people appreciated this young group 
doing what it can, and for that matter, not just doing what it can, but doing it with such style and such panache. There was panache to this production, and um, so I really had a wonderful time. And um, yes, it was great fun to be in Central Park as well. Five o'clock in the afternoon, and if this gets out by five o'clock tonight, make sure you show up at Cleopatra's Needle at 79th Street and uh, and see this um, very potent, upbeat and up um, <laughs> updated uh, Electra. I noticed that it was, I did not see it, but it, it's advertised as a travesty in one act. Can you talk about that a little <laughs> bit? There's no question that they played around with it. Um, and um, it, it really um, didn't just stay in the in the purview of um, Sophocles, um, if you know Greek tragedy, and I can't say I'm too familiar with it, but um, if you know Greek tragedy, um, you may notice that there is um, a few um, little shards of Aeschylus, Euripides, and Seneca. Now, that's something I've been told. I, I certainly didn't notice that. But yes, um, there certainly were <laughs> comic touches, especially from uh, one man in the chorus who uh, really did a lot of... Um, funny moves uh, to the point of almost dancing almost and um and he brought a lot of comic relief to what was going down so uh so yes um i didn't know that there was the subtitle of a travesty in one act until you um informed me of that michael but um i i found it um much more on the beam than just a tragedy so uh so i had a good time hmm and how did you find out about this um, I got an email saying, uh, gee, would you come? So that's good enough for me in these troubled times. Uh, <laughs> you know, and frankly, I've been trying to walk uh, more to keep on losing mm-hmm. weight. And so I thought, <laughs> all right, this is good. You know, I mean, it'll get me to 79th Street. And uh, even though the cobblestones on the way to um, on, on that side of Fifth Avenue are murder, um, maybe that did help, too. So. Uh, so, yes, I lost another two ounces. And uh, I have to thank um, the cast of Electra for me making that happen. <laughs> All right. So slowly but surely, we're uh, clawing our way back into mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Pr- productions here. And that's, uh, that's a good thing. It's tougher to do in the wintertime. So we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll have see to, what happens. Yeah. We'll have to see there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, uh, I, I'm totally, totally blank. Uh, 1812. What was the Comet of 1812? Did it in Natasha. a tent? Natasha right, and yeah. Pierre and the, uh, did it in the tent. So I, I don't know if the tent counts as outdoors that they could do in the uh, winter there. So we'll see what happens there. Michael, you also uh, wanted to talk about some new recordings that are coming out on vinyl. And so we've, we've talked about this uh, briefly before. So what, what's new? Well, no, actually, I'm, I wanted to talk about recordings that came out on vinyl a really long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We just, uh, we just have never, never caught up with them. So are these new to you or are you just oh, yes. revisiting yeah. them? No, no. I, I'm, I'm, I've been collecting old uh, recordings on vinyl, uh, mostly cast albums, but also some operas and, and other things, but mostly cast albums in secondhand record shops um and because i recently fairly recently got a turntable and so i i've been doing Uh some collecting with that i I had i had not had a turntable for about 30 or 35 years um and it's been really fun to to get into it it's it's really kind of comforting especially when you 
get your hands on an original pressing of a classic cast album. And I just, I, I've noticed some very interesting things in looking at them in the packaging. Uh, just a couple of things I wanted to mention because um, I find it so interesting. Take Me Along is uh, one of the albums that I got, 1959 musical um, uh, Bob Merrill, we've discussed it recently, and it's uh, it's billed as the Peter Glenville production, um, directed by Mister Glenville. So th- I thought that was interesting. But uh, but the thing that really caught my eye on the credits on that recording is that Bob Merrill is listed as Robert Merrill, huh. uh, not Bob. And uh-huh. I thought he had really avoided that. Because uh, in an effort to yeah, uh, to avoid any confusion with the very very famous opera singer Robert Merrill, who had been famous since the forties, um, so I don't know why. Uh, maybe somebody talked Bob Merrill into uh, using a more formal version of his name. Uh, I think it was for only that show that I could see because I also got uh, an original pressing of Carnival. On MGM Records, uh, the other uh, big, well, the the bigger hit, I guess, of the Bob Merrill musicals, mm-hmm. and uh, that was 1961. And this, I think, um, I think Peter has specifically mentioned this before, but I just wanted to repeat: it is so interesting. the The question as to whether or not there should be an exclamation point <laughs> at the end of the title is so confused that on mm-hmm. this original pressing of this mm-hmm. this gatefold album of the original mm-hmm. cast recording. On the cover, mm-hmm. there is no exclamation point. Uh, when you open it up to the gatefold inside and see the, the spread with all the photos and text, etc., there it is. So I don't know what that's all about. Um, the same size print, the same print, the same yeah. typeface. Everything's the same except you have the exclamation point. You know, the published text by Drama Bookshop, which is considered one of the rarest um, texts of any musical hardcover uh, i've seen it um being auctioned for ten thousand dollars and i mean that um really yeah oh yeah um that hello dolly and bye bye birdie interestingly enough all written by michael stewart were produced um were published by the drama bookshop and there weren't that many of them and uh, the, oh. i i have seen them um all go uh not go for but at least <laughs> put up for bid at um ten thousand dollars even that one has um exclamation points here and no exclamation points there in the published text i mean the cover the inside the title page all that kind of stuff there's no consistency whatsoever so um like jenny i guess they couldn't make up their mind well i i mean <laughs> that's that's so glaring i i, sure. I really think they sh- could have been a little more meticulous about that and made a decision one way or the other and as i've said uh my personal opinion that show is so dark that I really think that the exclamation point is inappropriate unless one wanted, I suppose one wanted to interpret it as ironic, but I don't think that really works. So I, I think they should have just left it off. Um, another thing I noticed uh, is some misspellings on cast albums. Uh, this one I did not buy, uh, but I, I found in a, Oh, there's a wonderful um, old uh, secondhand book and record store on 72nd street called West Sider records that I believe has been there for years and years, but I only recently discovered it. Um, and they have some really wonderful stuff. And one of the things they had was the original, well, there are different, um, 
Or, there, there are more. There's more than one album that is sort of billed as the original London cast of West Side Story, but there's one in which George Shakiris actually played the role of Riff. Mm. And that is the one that they had. And believe it or not, his name was spelled wrong. Hmm. His last name was spelled wrong in big, big letters as C-H-A-K-I-R-A-S. Uh. So that really surprised me. Um, I noticed a, an original pressing of the Boyfriend uh, original cast album, uh, the Julie Andrews show, w- uh, where the name of the musical director, Anton Coppola, uh, was spelled incorrectly. The correct spelling is the same as Francis Ford. Coppola, mm-hmm. but they had it spelled C O P P A L A, not O L A. Uh, and I noticed that. I uh, noticed I I did buy an original pressing of the My Fair Lady original cast recording. Oh, yeah. uh, if, if we detect a <laughs> Julie Andrews theme here, <laughs> and uh, I noticed that uh, the fellow who played who created the role of Freddie Einsford Hill in, in the original Broadway cast, his name was John Michael King, yeah. but on the album he's only listed as Michael King, uh, at least in one place. I think on on the on the back cover. I, I think it might be correct somewhere. What else. I thought you were going to say is that um, the early pressings of My Fair Lady had the song listed as I Want to Dance All Night. <laughs> yes, I. Uh, the one that I got does not say that. Mm-hmm. So it uh-huh. must have, they must have corrected it very soon because mm-hmm. this is obviously from, mm-hmm. you know, from, from one of the original uh, pressing runs. But uh, Gerard Alessandrini had reminded me of that recently. So the first thing I went was to check and see if it said I want to dance all night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it, uh, regrettably, it did not. But uh, I, I just, uh, I, I think this speaks to the fact that these albums were really, really, really rushed out. Um, I, I mean, they would prepare the packaging uh, obviously and the text etc beforehand uh and then they would record the albums frequently on the sunday uh, right after a show opened in a marathon session and then sometimes have them incredibly have them in stores before the end of the week uh and so uh you know but but the uh they they, they had a little more time for the for the prep for the packaging and the text but that also was done in a, with a very small window and i suppose that accounts for misspellings and and other, songs uh, that didn't make the album uh, so many times on yes. columbia records they used to say songs are listed as of a certain date you know right. indicating it might right. not be the plastic alligator is not on here is love everything's easy when you know how is not on superman um, uh, by the way, those are very good decisions, but that's another story, but they are listed as songs that you will hear, um, on the, um, list of, uh, the tune stacks. So, so that's kind of interesting. You know, when you mentioned the store on 72nd street, um, I know this 13 year old boy uh, named Charles Kirsch, who's going to be moderating by the way, may I point out, um, a discussion that Josh Ellis and I are going to have, uh, with the York theater company on the 26th of the month at seven o'clock. Um, check the York website in a couple of days and they'll give you um, the information. Um, but um, Charles is a real Broadway maven. And um, even though he's 13 years old and um, I once asked him, Charles, have you ever been in a record store? <laughs> and he said, um, I've been in stores that sell records, but, but, but CDs, but um, no, I've, I've never been in a record store. Uh, so, um, so 72nd Street is where we should send him. I don't know about this place, Michael. 72nd and what? 
Oh, it's uh, it's just west of um, you know where everything comes together. There, Broadway and what is that, Columbus? It, just really down the block from where Tower Records used to be. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, I uh, I figured I was west the last person or- to know West Sider Records. Uh, uh, no, right. but, but west of Broadway, or yes, yes. So uh, Tower was on the corner, the northwest corner. Right, and if you were to head west from there, you would uh, you would ah, run into it. It's two thirty three West Seventy Second Street. Okay, okay, and it's no. really wonderful. I I uh, high, highly recommend it. You can Google them. The number is two one two eight seven four one five eight eight. And the fellow there, I I I sorry, I don't remember his name. He's he's really uh, really great and very knowledgeable and very helpful and very nice. All right. And they do have books. They have, have lots of books as well and, and opera recordings and um, um, other really, really interesting, old, old, wonderful stuff. <laughs> as soon as this is over, I'm taking a cab. Hmm? <laughs> Does anybody know if there's a Krispy Kreme still on 72nd? Uh, it opens at, uh, <laughs> uh, by the way, <laughs> I don't know about the Krispy Kreme, but uh, the uh, West, Side, West Sider Records opens at uh, noon today. <laughs> <laughs> James, do not tell me about a Krispy Kreme. This is. A- <laughs> I, I was. I was going to say that it will not get your business. Okay, it will fine. not. Now we're talking. Now, it did will. I read that the one in Times Square has opened? Yes, it has. Oh, okay. Yes, Peter, you should not know that. That is on the. That's right. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's in the danger zone in between you and Linda. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Walking every day, you know, I pass it, but I've been good so far, so um, I can hold my head up high. It's you know, it's a tough day when it's rainy and cold and windy and snow on the ground, and it's and that that light comes on says hot fresh donuts inside. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. tough one, indeed. <laughs> All right. So um, something else that was very sweet this week was that the uh, Tony Award nominations were announced. Uh, And, um, uh, you know, uh, this is not our prediction show, so let's not go predictions. I I think the prediction that we should make is when the hell are these awards going to be? But uh, so let's, uh, you know, get your general overall take on the uh, Tony Award nominations that were announced this week. So, Peter, why don't you, what was your thoughts on the? Well, of course, it was so depressing to see no best score um, involve a musical. Good Lord, who ever saw that happening years ago? Uh, it, it's just un, unspeakable to think that that happened, even in the terrible year when it was. Uh, um, and the thing is, there wouldn't, uh, as far as I know, there wouldn't have been that more many uh, possibilities even if the season had not been truncated is that that right yes but i do believe that they would have uh, even had one or two nominees um because if they're giving one nomination to aaron uh for being in um moulin rouge and nobody else in that category i'm told that um if aaron doesn't get 60 percent of the vote yeah. he's not going to get a tony award that is so embarrassing to think that you can essentially lose to yourself in a strange sort of way. Um, I, I, I think they really should have just given him the award outright if, if that was the case. Mm. I, I feel so bad for him. I mean, if, I have a feeling the voters are going to feel much the way I, I feel and say, listen, it's going to be too embarrassing and awful to say uh, you've lost, you were nominated, but you lost, and you lost to nobody but yourself in a strange sort of way. So, so that was the weirdest one, even more than best score. But yeah, sure, there wouldn't have been a, a great number of best score uh, possibilities, but there would have been some. And because 
because of the Sunset Boulevard year, um, they might have given an award outright, which, as I say, which I think is what they should have done to to Aaron. Um, and so that that, of course, is the thing that really made me gasp um, in in disbelief. I w- what also made me gasp, frankly, was the fact that there were uh, five nominees for um, straight play, because I would have thought in a year like this that there wouldn't have been uh, that many, um, that they would have narrowed it down, considering uh, here I am complaining that they're not beefing up um, the the best actor in a musical category and, and complaining that they're, they didn't tamp down best play. But, you know, really, um, it would have been uh, far more convincing that these were uh, awards that were really looking for excellence by um, taking four out of the five or even three out of the five so, um, and given the fact there would have been some sort of symmetry, not that that's important, but with the musicals, which there were three, and good Lord, looking at every category with the musical, um, was there any category with these three, aside from the best actor, where these three weren't um, in contention? Um, a, a quick look indicated to me that that was the case. Um, every category uh, for the nominees for blah, blah, blah in a musical are, you know, Jagged Little Pill, Moulin Rouge, Tina. Um, so, um, and, you know, I, I know that we all have to make allowances. Uh, we do. And so this is not a year, really. I, I've done too much criticism of these awards already. The, 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 this is a year where everybody should get a pass for everything, um, except the people who, of course, who didn't do enough to stop the pandemic. But that's another story. Mm. So so um, yeah, I, I've grossed enough and I'm not going to gross anymore. <laughs> Michael, what about you? Well, I was very sorry that the Lightning Beef didn't get a score nomination. I I really, really enjoyed the show when I saw it off-Broadway at the Lortel. Um, less so on-Broadway, and I can't quite put my finger on it um, as to why, but I certainly think that um, they could have done something to recognize the score uh, music and lyrics by Rob Rokicki. Uh, I, uh, I do remember that the, seem to remember that the show got quite poor reviews across the board, the, the Broadway version. So I suppose that that explains it, but I, uh, I mean, I just think that's very, very sad. And, and on a similar note, I don't know why Chris McCarroll who played uh, Percy Jackson in it, I don't know why he didn't get a nomination alongside Aaron Tveit. Uh, 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 there again, I, uh, for some reason, I, I didn't enjoy him as much on Broadway as I did off Broadway. I thought he had, it seemed to me that maybe he was um, starting to camp it up a little bit. Uh, and maybe that, you know, I, I imagine he did that just to, in an effort to make his performance bigger for, a, for Broadway. Um, but I, I thought it was, uh, superior off Broadway, I, I, he had a lot of heart, and uh, uh, and he has a beautiful voice, and he uh, he was perfect for the role, and he, and he looked the right age, and I thought he was really wonderful, he, he, uh, still still wonderful, even though if not as great as I thought he was off Broadway. So I don't know why that happened, uh, and I think that's very upsetting as well. I, it almost seems like. Uh, some people on the nominating committee really, really had it in for this show uh, and did not want to see it represented. As far as Aaron Tveit, um, now, uh, just just to clarify, if we can, uh, so he will obviously be the only name in that category. Um, uh, is there any reason to suspect that he would not get 60 
percent of the voters. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, they can't vote for anyone else. So I, I guess they would just have to leave that blank. Uh, and then uh, if more than uh, if more than 40 percent of them leave that blank, then he wouldn't get the award. I, guess. I think I think that was the D. The explanation from the Tony Awards, uh, insofar as the process goes, I, I wouldn't expect it. And uh, Matt Tamanenny and I talked about it on Today on Broadway, and uh, and we feel as though that uh, Aaron is well well enough liked. Uh, and while Moulin Rouge might not have shown off his best talents, he's had a string of uh, a pretty uh, pretty good shows that people have liked him in. And yeah, we feel as though that this is not going to be. Uh, an embarrassing or a scandal uh, that the Tony Awards would make for themselves. But it was interesting to me from the, these announcements that they would go ahead and make an announcement without having a firm date in mind. Hmm. In, in terms of Aaron, by the way, uh, I also have to say that uh, when I went to the press preview uh, in a rehearsal room of Catch Me If You Can, um, I was convinced he was going to win the award. He was so yeah. dynamic, um, and I was amazed. He didn't even get nominated, am I correct? I don't think he got nominated. Mm, uh, I right. don't think so, yeah. So, I mean, I was I was flabbergasted because uh, I really thought he had it. So, um, so if they give him the award this time for that, uh, as well as Moulin Rouge, I'm okay. Is Aaron Tveit a Theater World Award winner, do you know? I don't think so. I think it was one of those things like he'd been in a million other shows before yeah. he made his, um, you know, official. We try to, um, it's, it's the flaw in the theater world system. I mean, if somebody replaces um, in, you know, Beauty and the Beast or uh, Les Mis, you know, yeah. you've made your Broadway mm-hmm. debut. What can we tell you? You know, when people listen to their Playbill bios, Broadway, colon, you know, and they list six shows and, you know, and then they, um, you know, get their big break um, in, a, in another show. It's, it's hard for us to say that they're making their Broadway debut. So um, it is a flaw in the system and um, it's something I've not been able to work out any more than my two predecessors have. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a sad thing, but I think that was the reason why. The other thing I wanted to mention, uh, I think the only other point I, I wanted to make about the Tonys was that as someone, I think Peter Marks said, they, they could have easily moved Daniel J. Watts, uh, who plays Ike Turner, uh, in Tina, uh, Tur- the Tina Turner musical on Broadway, into the lead category, um, the actor, for what it's worth, the actor who played that role in London uh, before Broadway won the Best Actor uh, uh, Olivier, uh, Olivier Award. So uh, I think it was the Olivier, um, not supporting. So uh, the, they had that precedent. If that helped, I don't know if the role has been diminished since London. Uh, it did. I, I will say it didn't really come across as a leading role so much but still uh, it's it's in these troubled times yeah 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 (laughs) and um uh also uh one more thing for the lightning thief is that ryan knowles i think he got some really good reviews for uh his uh supporting performance in in, in multiple roles and he could have been um nominated uh in well, he could have been nominated in in uh, lead as well, possibly. Uh, uh, or, or no, I'm sorry. Well, he he could have been nominated in supporting, and then Chris McCarroll in 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 lead. Uh, although the the supporting the supporting uh, category, supporting actor in a musical category, is pre- is pretty well filled out as it is. So, um, very 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 
unusual year, obviously, uh, extremely unusual nominations in, in response to an unimaginable catastrophe. Hmm. So uh, as uh, Peter suggested, um, Aaron replaced in Hairspray and replaced in Wicked before uh, Next to Normal, where... Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, Hairspray Wicked, Next to Normal, Catch Me If You Can, Moulin Rouge is are his um, things. Probably he friends, was, yeah. yeah. And his only, uh, any, according to IBDB, his uh, awards are just the uh, most recent nomination this week. So mm-hmm. I have seen a video of Aaron in Hairspray. I think that's out there if, if people want to uh, search it out. <laughs> I see. So, um, Tony Awards, uh, what do you think? They haven't made any announcements here for the actual awards ceremony. Um, we going to have it before Christmas, after Christmas? I would think before, yeah, but who knows? <laughs> Michael, any uh, thought? Well, no, I have no idea. I do think that it might have been decided, again, it might have been decided one way or another by now. Um, I would have thought they might have wanted to have it all set, whatever it is they're going to do by the time the nominations were announced. Yeah, that, that's my, I <laughs> feel like they've not been able to get it together. It's one stumble after another. Uh, so we'll have to see. Um, and the announcements that were made this week were, uh, were made by uh, James Monroe Eigelhart, who will be joining us next Sunday uh, to talk with us. Oh, nice. So, uh, James Monroe, Eigelhart, next Sunday on This Week on Broadway. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But I didn't know this until recently. It's taken my TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Last week, I used ExpressVPN to binge Doctor Who on UK Netflix. It was so simple. I just fired up the ExpressVPN app, changed my location to the UK, refreshed Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think that you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's just not Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch shows is that it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream HD with no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all of your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support our show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. And thanks to ExpressVPN for continuing to support Broadway Radio. So next up, 
Michael, you suggested that we wish a happy 95th birthday to Angela Lansbury. I can't believe 95. Mm -hmm. It's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. So we thought we would talk a little bit about uh, Miss Lansbury's career. So why don't you get us started on that? Well, she did turn 95 this past Friday, October 16th, and it's one of the extraordinary careers in all of show business. Uh, didn't follow any any normal path. Uh, she, uh, she, you know, she came from England and she started making movies here at a very, very young age and was very, very well received in, in movies like Gaslight and the picture of Dorian Gray. And she's in National Velvet as Elizabeth Taylor's sister, I believe. Is that right? Uh, and uh, just really, really making an impression uh, in all of those movies um, and including some musicals in which she didn't always uh, do her own singing. I had interviewed her I had the privilege of interviewing her when she appeared in a little night music uh, as Madame Armfelt some years ago. And I, I have a, f um, there's a few excerpts of that that I thought I, I might read because they're really interesting. I said, in, in light of your status today as a revered star of musical theater, it's ironic that your singing voice was dubbed in some of your early films. Was that a big disappointment for you? And she said, well, back then I didn't have the right kind of voice for the Harvey girls, for example. My voice was too high and thin for the part, and therefore they dubbed me rightly so in that instance. But it's certainly my own voice in the picture of Dorian Gray, uh, which is not a musical, but, but she sings a song in that. Um, and Till the Clouds Roll By. The two times they dubbed me were in the Harvey Girls and another film. I can't remember the title or who was in it, mm -hmm. but I played a saloon singer. I had to sing a bunch of old 1930s songs in a low, boozy voice. So they dubbed me. I really didn't mind because I didn't have a low boozy voice in those days, only later. <laughs> 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 and I thought that was a delightful thing that she said. Um, and then she really became a musical comedy, a musical theater star, the first rank with name uh, at age 40, which is I would say rather unusual occurrence, uh, uh, previously having appeared in Anyone Can Whistle. And uh, she, uh, she has, she definitely credits that appearance with, with helping her to get maimed. She doesn't think there's any way that that would have ever happened otherwise. Um, I asked her about Anyone Can Whistle. I said, um, there have been some high-profile revivals of the show, including the 1995 staged concert version at Carnegie Hall, which you narrated, and the City Center Encore series will present Whistle in April 2010. Um, do you feel that the show was underappreciated in its day, or is the truth that it doesn't really work despite some beautiful songs and other fine elements? And her answer to that, she's always so honest, but so diplomatic. Uh, she says, I think you've said it very succinctly. It has some wonderful material, but it doesn't work as a whole. I know what Arthur Lawrence was trying to say, but it was too much for people to swallow. They didn't want to hear it. But some of the songs became almost 
standards to people who love Stevens music. With so little to be sure of was one of my husband's favorite songs, even though the show was a huge flop. Mm-hmm. Well, not, well, let's not say a huge flop. Let's say it was ahead of its time. <laughs> and uh, so I think that was... Uh, those are really cogent thoughts about that show. Um, by the way, speaking of Carnegie Hall, uh, one of my prized possessions is uh, audio of a concert performance of Lady in the Dark oh, yeah, yeah. from November 9th, 1969 that was done at what was then called Philharmonic Hall. That was before it was even called Avery Fisher Hall. So that was two names ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it... Uh, it's conducted by Donald Pippin, by the way, uh, who was the original conductor of MAME. So that's a, that's a wonderful little uh, synchronicity there. Um, this, it's uh, not the whole show. Uh, it's a concert version of it, a condensed concert version of it. And interestingly enough, the only name that really leaps out at me uh, as recognizable other than Miss Lansbury, who played Liza Elliott, is um, that the chauffeur was played by Timothy Jerome. Mm. Other than that, uh, these other people I'm really not that familiar with. Uh, Kendall Nesbitt was played by Ken Cantrill. Uh, Russell Paxton by Bob Caliban. Oh, yeah. He was in Ben Franklin in Paris. Okay, go on. Okay, yeah. Not not Balaban, but Caliban. Right. Um, Charlie Johnson was James Pritchett, uh, Randy Curtis, Henry Madden, and the maid was Constance Moffat. Uh, but anyway, it... Uh, it was a it's a wonderful performance narrated by of all people douglas fairbanks jr hmm. um so that's something you might want to uh seek out as as something really 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 special I, i'll never forget i um also have a, a an audio of when miss lansbury appeared in the king and i uh, in the seven, the late seventies, as a uh, what happened was that Yul Brynner went on vacation from that production, and uh, they didn't. Uh, they just had Michael Kermoyan f- fill in for him uh, as the king during that. But they felt they needed a, a star name, uh, you know, just since he wasn't going to be there. And so Angel Lansbury uh, went and did it for two or three weeks, and I, I'll never, I, I had an opportunity for a ticket, and I couldn't use it I'll, I'll i'll never forgive myself for that but um, she was terrific beyond belief yeah. unfortunately the audience wanted to see yul brenner mm. so she did not do business and um but i'm telling you i i really thought that was going to be a sensation and imagine what it would have been like what a hot ticket that would have been if both of them had done the show <laughs> because uh, it was a hot ticket with yul brenner needless to say but if angela lansbury and yul brenner had done it together it would have been something i still i will never forget exactly where uh one of the producers was in my apartment when um, he was on the phone and the deal was settled um, that she was going to go in. I mean, I could position him exactly where he's standing <laughs> in this, the same apartment. And uh, because it was such an exciting thing to think of. And she was magnificent and she gave it her all, even though the audiences were sparse. I'm sorry to say um, I was amazed that they didn't come out to see her do that because what a great role for her at that time. 
Yes, absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, I am glad the audio exists. And uh, so, so here's the interesting thing. I, when I interviewed her on the phone for the uh, little night music interview for the Sondheim Review, by the way, I mentioned that I had the audio of Lady in the Dark and also The King and I. And, you know, you're never sure how you people never, are going yeah, to react to right. that. But I took <laughs> the chance and, she's, uh, and she said, oh, I would love to have those. And I said, well, you know, I could send them to your assistant or perhaps I could bring them backstage when I <laughs> when I come to see the show. And she said, oh, that would be lovely. So I went backstage uh, after the show with a, I remember I was with a, a, a 25-year-old musical theater actor who was, needless to say, and mm. you know, mm-hmm. in this in the stratosphere, mm-hmm. uh, and she received us so wonderfully, and she was so happy to have the the um, the CDs. and And while we were there, uh, a major major figure in the theater came in uh, to see her, and so it was uh, Angela Lansbury, this major figure in the theater, and myself and my friend <laughs> in her dressing room. And the first thing she said to him when uh, he came in was, was she handed him the CDs and said, oh, look, she said, this is when I went into The King and I for three weeks in 1970, whatever year that was, <laughs> seven, eight. Uh, and she was so excited by it. And I thought that was wonderful that that she could have that reaction to it. Um, she is a thorough professional, but also uh, very, very respectful of of all of her colleagues. and And I have have always have always appreciated the fact that she somehow is able to be honest, uh, even even when being negative. Uh, but but it obviously comes from honesty and not from nastiness or or rivalry or anything like that she when she loves something she's she's the first to be uh, to lead the cheering but when she does not she she just states very honestly and and clearly what she objected to uh for example i asked her about the film of sweeney todd and she said that she was sorry that uh, Helena Bonham Carter was not able to bring to the role the the humor that she wanted to bring to it because she had read um, interviews, I, I guess, and I had also where Helena Bonham Carter said that her husband, or Tim Burton, uh, did not, uh, he just had a much darker image of the, of the whole show and that role in particular and so he did not uh he, he want the humor to be played up even in songs like the worst pies in london where one would think it would be absolutely essential um so i thought that that was a very diplomatic and very honest way uh and very accurate way to phrase uh miss lansbury's reaction to that performance and uh, another interesting thing she said was that uh Ms. Lansbury said that she was criticized by some people for her performance in Sweeney Todd. Uh, some people felt she was too broadly comic, but she said she really, really felt that the show needed that because of the because of, of the, the dark elements and that it needed that to kind of leaven it uh, and uh that the comedy needed to to be played full out and very broadly along with the obviously the you know because this is a show in which 
blood is spurting from people's throats and people are being having their dead bodies sent down shoots to a basement to be ground into mean pies. So she felt that for that reason that the comedy uh, really needed to be ramped up as well. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Peter, have you got any uh, stories of Miss Lansbury? Well, um, the only thing she has ever said to me is, oh, you're the one. <laughs> Uh-oh. That sounds like we might have something there. <laughs> that was it. It was at uh, a Tony nomination party, and uh, Jim Bick, the wonderful publicist, uh, was mm. accompanying her. And as we're walking, um, he pointed to me and said, he saw Pretty Bell four times, and that's why she said, oh, you're the one. <laughs> So that's it. And they sauntered by and that was the end of that. Um, though I, I still, I've told the story before, but since we're talking about Angela Lansbury, I have to tell it. Yes, I did see Pretty Bell four times. And at the fourth and final performance, um, it was it was the closing night in Boston. Uh, it was not coming to Broadway. And uh, the show ends with her singing the word Pretty Bell three times in a very, very atypical Julie Stein type of song it's a lazy country waltz it's a marvelous song anyway um she sang pretty bell pretty bell and then just lifted up her arm to the ceiling and then just let it drop down in frustration and sadness and um that's something you don't get at the movies you know to see her that really indicated to me that she did care about it at mm. that moment in time and i have said this before too but i'll say it again yes alexa smith was magnificent in follies phenomenal beyond belief but if lands had come in with Pretty Bell, she would have had another Tony Award. Uh, it, it was a phenomenal performance in a very difficult role about a woman who's um, essentially goes crazy when she finds out that her husband has been terrible. He was a sheriff, terrible to the people down south that he was supposed to be protecting uh, because they were minorities. Um, in a sense, it would be a very timely story today. But um, and there are a million things wrong with Pretty Bell, I'll grant you, but it was so fascinating for me to see. And that performance was so riveting. And I do believe the songs she were given, she was given were so spectacular. Um, a tender song called To a Small Degree about the fact that um, when you're in a marriage that isn't really that hot, you still love to a small degree. And I, I, I know couples like that like crazy. So, and... Um, um, how could I know what was going on? A real, almost an anthem um, uh, was incredible. I have seen every one of her Broadway performances, uh, starting with uh, Mame. And ironically enough, I would have seen Anyone Can Whistle. I had a ticket for it, but it closed uh, before I could get to it. So um, after that, I have seen every one of them. Mame and Dear World and Gypsy, in fact, were all in Boston. Um, and um, when I was still living there and uh, they all tried out there and uh, I, I had read the script of MAME um, beforehand and I didn't think it was going to be any good at all because I didn't know how to read a musical. I was too young. And uh, to see her come through, mm. especially as wonderful as she was, the real galvanizing moment to me was in uh, My Best Girl. And the reason is when she said, you're my best beau, she was so tender and so loving and so caring. And this is the Angela Lansbury who always played roles of a different nature in movies. I mean, in many movies, she was such a bitch, certainly in Manchurian Candidate, for which um, she would have got the Academy Award had it 
not been a year when um, uh, a lifetime achievement type thing was going on. But really, um, a phenomenal performance is a very evil woman and a castrating mother. And she played one of those two in Blue Hawaii, the Elvis Presley movie, even though she was only a few years older than Elvis Presley. She always was playing these older, tough ladies. And so, um, and even in um, um, Gaslight, but even though she was playing a maid, she was so supercilious to uh, the woman she was working for because she was on the husband's side. She didn't like the woman. She liked the husband. And she knew the husband didn't like the wife. So as a result, she allied with him and knew that um, he was the one paying the bills. So as a result, she was safe to be able to be so supercilious. And yes, that was an Oscar nomination, even though it was not a big part. But what an impression she made even back then. Um, I still remember my wife at the time being so enthusiastic uh, after Rose's turn, uh, Rose's turn uh, um, when she did Gypsy, um, because what a powerhouse rendition. Of course, you know, Merman is always the one we always compare everyone to, but let's not forget the Lance was the first one to win a Tony for that part. Not the last, I'll grant you, but the first. And she really brought out the fact that Rose was um, a lower class woman. Now, if you read Carolyn Quinn's excellent book, Mama Rose's Turn, you will find out that's not quite accurate. But we didn't know that then. And um, I thought it was a very smart interpretation. And um, and I wasn't surprised when she won the Tony for that. Of course, by that time, she had won the Tony for Dear World. And it was just so amazing to see her as the mad woman of Chaillot after having seen her so elegant and stylish with all those millions of costume changes. There was even a different costume change for the uh, curtain call to see her looking bedraggled and harried and uh, weather-worn and all those other words indicate not so hot. And um, and so the look of her was spectacular. And even though the show had a million problems, because the Mad Woman of Shio has a million problems, there's no ending you can give it that really makes any type of, um, that really convinces you, yes, that that's going to work. That's going to happen. That that would solve all our problems. It, it just cannot be done. So as a result, um, she, um, she was mesmerizing in the show and even though the show was a terrible disappointment <laughs> and only ran a little more than 100 performances yes um it was it was spectacular to see her um do that role and uh, i was very glad the tony voters uh, acknowledged that so um she came back in mame in 83 actually i saw this in philadelphia mm. at the uh, academy of music which was much too big a theater for it and um, the William and Jean Eckert sets really got lost on the stage and it really seemed at sea. But again, she was giving it her all and she really seemed as if she was really thrilled. The The two things um, I really want to mention more than anything else was um, no, there in 2009, you know, she's getting on, she's no kid. And uh, there she is doing Madame Arcardi and Blythe Spirit. And there's a point early in the show where she has to essentially do this strange type of dance to summon in all the um the uh ghosts from christmas past and everywhere else and there she is who yeah 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 that, that type of dance around the table and she's doing it with such style it was just wonderful to see and you know for a woman who was getting on uh, it was really wonderful to see that she still had that uh ability but then um in 2012 when she did the best man she was injured and so she had to do it with a cane and all I could think of was all the young people on Broadway who call in sick when they have a paper cut or something like that. And here was this woman who could say, look, you know, um, you know I'm, I'm you know, 80-something years old and, you know, I, I, I injured myself. No, 
No, she got a cane. She went out there. She did the role. She made the cane part of the character. And, um, and for that reason, that may be the performance where I admire Angela Lansbury most mm-hmm. of all, um, because nobody would have thought twice if she said, I can't do it. But she said, I can do it, and I will do it. And, um, and that's the last time we saw her on Broadway, and I imagine the last time, too. Don't forget, she was supposed to do the visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was, she even, there's even a couple of songs that she recorded. Um, uh, I don't mean professionally or anything like that, but she did do, uh, at least two songs on demos and, um, and she would have been magnificent in that too. Um, her husband was terribly ill and, uh, it just wasn't the right time. And, um, there may have been other problems in getting the show on, but, uh, still, um, it would have been something if she, nothing against Sheeta Rivera, who was magnificent in the role, but uh, it would have been something to see Angela Lansbury play that part. So, um, it would have really been quite wonderful. And I'm sorry that that didn't happen. Have you ever, have you ever seen a, another performer where, such a relationship between the writers of a show uh, are so close with with a performer, and I'm thinking Angela Lansbury and Stephen Sondheim, and Angela Lansbury and, and Jerry, and Jerry, Jerry yeah, Herman, yeah, Jerry Herman, really and Cantor and Ebb, and uh, I mean, uh, this is just an amazing thing. Peter, you had you said before that you had tickets to Anyone Can Whistle, but you didn't see it. Did you eventually see Angela Lansbury in Anyone Can Whistle? No, no, I was uh, I was working on a TV show in Boston when that uh, concert happened, uh, so I couldn't do it. But um, it's it's so wonderful. Whoever wrote the dialogue, I don't even know who it was when she came out and said, uh, once upon a time, uh, I was a mayor of the town. For a very yeah. short term. It's such a wonderful line. You know? <laughs> You're talking about the Carnegie it. Hall? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Carnegie I, Hall. I, I, I missed that um, because I wasn't here. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's it's... It's amazing. You know, there, there used to be a, a radio show called Life Begins at 40. And um, that certainly is true in this case, uh, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, we always hear all the time how um, actresses have a tough time getting cast in Hollywood after they're, they're that age. And uh, and of course, Angela Lansbury was was not in the, um, you know, Anne Margaret Bridget Bardot um, mold. She was certainly a character actress from day one. But still, you know, the fact remains that um, her life did begin after 40. And uh, people had no idea that you Now, to be fair. I mean, it's not as if um, Mame was her Broadway debut or even anyone can whistle. I mean, she did do two, two plays before that. Um, Hotel Paradiso um, in 57, much before my theater going time, and um, which is a French farce uh, by George Fadeau. And A Taste of Honey, again, where she played a tough character. She was a mother of a girl, and uh, they weren't getting along at all. And um, they, they certainly got along less when she when the mother found out that the uh, girl was pregnant with um, uh, through an African-American uh, sailor. So that didn't bring her any pleasure either. So, um, And I, I can see why she would get cast in that. But, you know, you got to give Stephen Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence credit for thinking of her for anyone can whistle. It wasn't like she showed up at auditions. They wrote her and said, um, you know, we think you'd be great in this part. And that was a, a, another example of what a wild idea it would be. Um, and anyone can whistle was full of wild ideas, good <laughs> wild ideas and bad wild ideas. We'll all admit it now, but still, still to think 
you know who'd be terrific in this part? You know, I mean, it's strange to say it, but uh, you know, how about Angela Lansbury? And um, yeah, it, and it really was something. She was almost replaced. I mean, the, 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 they they did get wary. Somebody got wary. I don't. I guess it was Arthur Lawrence because he was directing. Because they did invite Nancy Walker to come in and uh, mm. see the show, and um, so that was um, at least discussed at the time. But um, friends I know who saw uh, um, anyone come whistle in Maine, Philadelphia, fully admit that early on in the run, she didn't quite have it yet. Not yet. But boy, did she get it as time went on. So, uh, so again, uh, not a person who would um, lie down and die. I mean, she, um, she would, if she wasn't good at the beginning, okay, then uh, she was good uh, as time went on. And um, it was funny, we were talking about Jerry Herman songs in a group I belong to that meets every Thursday. And um, you know, I, 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 I was mentioning something I mentioned here before again. Uh, Do You Call That Living was the name of the song she did in Boston instead of That's How Young I Feel. Yeah, I, I don't know of any time this has happened. I'm sure it had, but um, where That's How Young I Feel was in Philadelphia. They replaced it with, do you call that living in Boston? And by the time they got to New York, they went back to, that's how young I feel. Usually when a song is written to take the place of another song, it stays in, but not in this case. And um, and uh, I, I still have memories of her doing it. I can still see her doing it. And I still remember even some of the melody. So even though um, it wasn't a top-notch song, she sold it to me that night at the uh, Schubert Theater in Boston. I I have heard it said that at, for on at least three occasions uh the, the, and you just mentioned one of them anyone can whistle also gypsy and also mame that in all three cases that she really had to work it at all three and it was not all there from the beginning mm-hmm. uh which i i think is uh, we mentioned her last week as a triple threat performer uh and i was talking i think specifically about the uh well, kind of specifically about the dancing um, yeah, from yeah. from Mame, yeah. but also you know the the singing. She really had to work on her voice. She had not um, had a great deal of experience singing that kind of music. Uh, for Gypsy, when I interviewed her uh, for that 2010 interview for the Sondheim Review, she said uh, that was a real breakthrough for me. I started it, as you probably know, in the London production. We rehearsed in a drill hall in Clapham, which is now considered very in, but in those days was not. I have to tell you, it was due to the encouragement and help of Stephen Arthur and Julie Stein in London during the rehearsal period that I managed to work the role up to the point where everyone was pleased. I really had to learn a lot in a short space of time because here I was doing something I had always said I wouldn't do, which was to follow in a role that had been created originally by Ethel Merman. I was very worried and trepidatious, as you can imagine, but they gave me every possible bit of encouragement, and Stephen particularly made it possible for me to come through. Um, Peter earlier mentioned Alexis Smith, and on that note, uh, I asked Miss Lansbury, are there any Sondheim roles you didn't play that you would have liked to have a go at? And she said, there was some discussion of me playing the Alexis Smith role in Follies, but I think at that point I was in England and I was doing quite a lot of huge movies, so it couldn't be arranged. I don't think there's any role in any of the other Sondheim shows that would have been right for me. I'm not that easy to cast, you know. 
<laughs> now, as far as um, Phyllis and Follies, that's interesting because, as Peter just said, uh, as it turned out, uh, Miss Lansbury wound up doing Pretty Bell pretty much at the same time. Yeah, oh, yeah. They were both in town at the same yeah, time, both in yeah. Boston. Yeah. But maybe maybe the during the when the arrangements were being made, uh, she mm-hmm. thought she had other commitments or whatever. I, I just thought it was interesting that she named that particular role. And indeed, one could see how she she would have been a really wonderful Phyllis. Um, I asked her uh, if she could speak a little about Sondheim's work process during rehearsals. And she said he prefers to discuss the piece before you ever get into the rehearsal studio. He works with us in his house. We listen to what we're going to be singing. He talks about what he had in mind and how he feels the song should be delivered. Uh, Stephen wants to make everything as easy as possible, so he's very helpful in terms of adjusting keys and things of that sort. But once the rehearsals begin, he pretty much stays out of it. I don't remember him ever walking down to the stage and saying, let's do it this way. He would never usurp the director's authority in front of the cast. I do remember that we all worked very closely together on A Little Priest in Sweeney Todd. When Stephen was writing it, he and... You uh, Wheeler, the book writer, used to sit out in the audience and think up new funny things for Mrs. Lovett and Sweet <laughs> to refer to in those little exchanges between the two of them. It was very much a give and take situation. Sometimes we had to paste the lyrics on the backside of the orchestra pit because they were so new that we couldn't memorize them in time. Mm. <laughs> and I asked her if. Um, she had any closing thoughts about her near half century with Sondheim at that point, 2010. And she said, as I've said, I really do feel that Stephen and I have come full circle. He is a very dear friend and a most loving man. I'm enormously grateful that I'm back again with him and to be able to do this role in a little night music at this time in my life is a tremendous gift. I do remember something I did not get to in 2017. There was a, uh, a, a reading of the Chalk Garden, the Enid Bagnall play for the acting company uh, that Miss Lansbury starred in, along with um, uh, Simon Jones and Francesca Faradani and David Lansbury and Charlotte Perry. Uh, and it looked for a while that that might be her final performance because uh, I, I'm not sure if she, I'm not 100% sure if she ever officially announced a retirement, but. Obviously, it's been winding down. But then this incredible thing happened on April 30th, 2018. And Miss Lansbury made a surprise appearance at Carnegie Hall to sing Beauty and the Beast with Mm. the New York Pops in a tribute to Alan Menken Mm. with the full orchestra playing the full original orchestrations and in the original key. Mm. Um, And that... uh, Thank God someone captured on video. I have sent the link to James uh, to include in the show notes. I, uh, I, as far as I know, that is her last public performance and appearance to date. And if it turns out to be, uh, then you will just give it a look and a listen and you'll be absolutely transported. And, and probably, as I said, I wasn't there. If I had been, I, I, I'm sure I would have dissolved in tears and you, you might find the same thing happening to you when you watch the video. Do uh, either one of you remember, um, uh, uh, was it, I don't know if this was a rumor, if this actually happened about a, 
a, a, a version of Sunset Boulevard written by Sondheim with Lansbury. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Peter mentioned it earlier. She, that was the early thought that he was going that Sondheim was going to write it uh, with Lansbury, and then uh, I'm not sure exactly what happened after. That. Um, Sondheim said to me that Billy Wilder. Uh, oh, right, right. Who, of course, was the auteur of um, Sunset Boulevard. He said, hey, I'm doing a musical of Sunset Boulevard. And Billy Wilder shook his head sadly and said, it should be an opera. It has to be an opera because she's a fallen queen. And um, and that's and he said that made perfect sense to me. And that's when I stopped doing it. Um, I would have loved to have heard of Sondheim Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> I would yeah. love to have heard of Sondheim Mary Poppins. He was working on that for a while. Mm. That was, <laughs> so, uh, so that would have been something too. But um, yeah, that that's who they had in mind. So. I did. I did ask her about that in in this twenty. 20- 10 interview and i said there's something i'd love to ask about although i imagine there's not much to say because yeah. it didn't happen yeah i remember that before andrew lloyd weber did sunset boulevard there were reports that sondheim was going to musicalize that property for you and she said yes we talked about that the other night can you imagine uh, <laughs> um he and i and we regretted that we hadn't done it but it wasn't to be she get this then I almost did it with Lloyd Webber. Mm. He and I mm. discussed it with Hal Prince, mm. but it all fell apart and I went on to other things. I don't really know what happened. Mm. Wow. The last thing I want to say this morning is that uh, people, uh, Angela Lansbury is held in great reverence in the Broadway community. And uh, if you go through IBDB, she's got, you know, 15, 20 credits or something like that in IBDB. But if you go over to IMDB, <laughs> she's got hundreds of credits. And, you know, Hundred- I mean, it's so amazing that uh, the words murder, she, and wrote have not come up in this discussion in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, you know, because Lord knows there's uh, millions upon millions of people who have never stepped in a legitimate theater who know who she is as a result mm. of that TV show in which she was so warm and wonderful and she wasn't a smart ass you know considering the fact that she wound up having all the answers in that town where so many terrible things occurred yeah um <laughs> so <laughs> those little sleepy towns they worried about new york huh so anyway uh but it really was something that um the 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 general audience came to know who she was i remember at the time my kid um my son came to my apartment he had been here many many times many times he had seen the poster that said uh, the window card that said Angela Lansbury and Pretty Bell. And um, <laughs> then he gave it one time and said, Oh, Angela Lansbury, where does she wrote? You know, because that was the first he had mm. heard of her, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, and it had been up here since day one. But, um, but yeah, so, so it's really something uh, that uh, among those hundreds of credits certainly was that substantial one. And there again, <laughs> I believe she was 59. When it started, I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's just no precedence for something like that. No, there that. really isn't. There really you know, isn't. In, absolutely incredible. Well, that seems like a perfect way to end. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com. 
Radio.com, as well as a link to that Carnegie Hall uh, Beauty and the Beast uh, thing that Michael just talked about before that somebody captured for us. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? The question was, this legendary composer-lyricist won one and only one Besco Tony. The surname by which the world knows him is not the surname he had at birth, but his real surname is an anagram of the surname of an actress who appeared in a musical that same season that virtually everybody thinks should have won Best Score. Who am I talking about? Irving Berlin, who won the Best Score Prize for Call Me Madam. He was born Israel Bayline, B-A-L-I-N-E. That's an anagram for Blaine, B-L-A-I-N-E. And Vivian Blaine appeared in Guys and Dolls that same season. Does anyone think that the score should have lost to Call Me Madam? (laughs) Uh, I'm sure it was a Lifetime Achievement Award for all of Berlin shows. All of them were before the Tony started taking notice. So here we go. Nikki Juven was the first to get it. Followed by Tony Janicki, Steve Bell, Jack Leshner, Richard Carey, Mike Meany, Jake Leonard, Brigadude, Ian Tweedy, Ingrid Gammerman, Greg Christensen, Josh Israel, and Ben Koch. Notice that more people than usual answered. See, it sounded convoluted, but it wasn't as hard to figure out as it seemed at first glance. <laughs> Ought to be more accurate first listen. So given that you're all so good at the convoluted ones, <laughs> I'm going to give you another I believe in the credo. Find out what they like and how they like it and give it to them just that way. No, that's <laughs> not the question. I know all of you know that's the song from Ain't Misbehaving. No. I'll give the new convoluted question after I take a deep breath, which I'll need. Okay, here goes. A certain play by Edward Albee didn't get a, any Tony Awards or even a single nomination. Look carefully at its title, though, and you'll find within it the first name of a character in a hit musical. To make it a little clearer, what I'm talking about, here's an example. Hamilton contains the name Milton. So look for the name of a character within the title of the Albee play. Here's the hint. The performer who played the character, the musical's title character, in fact, won a Tony in the one and only time that this performer ever did a musical on Broadway although an appearance in a revival of a Broadway play came many years later. So you're looking for a character's name within the Albee title. And while you're at it, tell me the name of the musical and its Tony winner. Okay. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. And for my memories All are exciting my memories All are enchanted my memories Burning my head with a steady glow So if, my friends, if love is dead I don't want to lovely if laughter is no longer lilting if lovers are no longer loving that I don't want to know if summer is no longer carefree if children are no longer singing if people are no longer happy that I don't want to know let me hide
sand For my memories All are exciting my memories All are enchanted my memories 